How wide? How deep? How high? How far does the love of God reach for His creation? Many have tried to plumb the depths of His love and have come up with answers that seem to keep many people out of God's reach. How can a finite being such as a human possibly know the full expanse of the infinite? Maybe God is not the ogre many have portrayed Him to be. Today's readings from the Psalms and the Epistle and the Gospel all blend together to form, for me, a beautiful tapestry. I usually am not able to see the connection that the lectionary has chosen for the three readings, but this time I did. The Psalms said that the one whose sin is forgiven is blessed. The scripture lesson from the epistle said, the one whose sin is forgiven is a new creature. The gospel reading said, we didn't even get a chance to ask for forgiveness. Because there's so much in each of these readings, all I can do at this time is to give you a brief overview of the expansive love, mercy, and grace of God for us. But even while we were reading the gospel, I was thinking, oh man, I could just stay there for a while, but we're not doing that. Made it difficult for me to come up with a decent title for this message, so as you see in the bulletin, it's just dead and alive. Because that was the reference that the Father gave to the Son when he returned. Now, I have spent time on this concept quite a bit in weeks past, but it is something that continually shows up in the passages that come recommended, like I say, from the lectionary. Could that be because that's what the Bible is about? God's love for us, for his creation? I think so. Let's begin with the first reading from the Psalm in Psalm 32, where he said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice the three words that I've highlighted. They're all three words for the words sin, transgression, sin, and iniquity. Usually, I think that we just associate these as synonyms for the word sin, but each have a slightly different meaning. Sin, as we know, is a term from archery, missing the mark. It means not hitting the target. That's whenever in our lives we're wanting to do something and we don't quite get it right. That's missing the mark. For instance, as um, people are learning in our Thursday afternoon study about uh, taking control over the thoughts of their mind, and then they realize Uh, In the midst of a thing, they've let their mind wander again. That's missing the mark. Falling short of what it is that you set yourself to do. Secondly, iniquity is bending the line. That word means to just kind of bend it. You know how uh, kids especially are good at bending the rules? 
I didn't disobey. You know, I can remember when we were kids growing up, my brother liked to tie a string around the cat's neck. And um, mama jumped on him one day and said, said, Joe, don't tie the string around the cat's neck. A couple of hours later, she sees him with the string around the cat's neck. And she said, what? I didn't tie it, mama. I looped it. <laughs> Kids, that's us. That's bending the law. That's trying to scoot by. And then there's transgression. That's stepping over the line. That's knowing what you're supposed to do, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do what I'm told to do. That's just direct disobedience, full intention. So what we see here is that in any way that you want to define sin, it's covered in this passage in the Psalms. And it is covered by the Lord in grace and mercy of his forgiveness. David is saying here that the one for whom this is true is blessed and happy. Now, I always preach this verse. I love this verse. I loved when I discovered the three different meanings in the words. And I always preach this verse as something you must do to gain the blessing. To have the happiness and the blessing. But I don't see it that way any longer. Notice that it said, to whom the Lord doesn't count iniquity. David later wrote, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, that's a rhetorical question, which has an obvious answer. No one could stand. If the Lord kept track and held us accountable, no one could stand before him. So let's go on to consider the gospel reading. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Now, you know the basic story. We had it read this morning. The kid wanted his inheritance before he was supposed to get it. He took off and he squandered it. And then he began to feel sorry for himself. When he realized what he had done and what was costing him, he decided that he needed to rethink his plans. He decided to try his luck back home to see if maybe he could do better in his physical surroundings, not do better than he had done before. He had a speech all planned out that he thought sure would cause his dad to feel sorry for him. But before he could get the words out of his mouth, the father was already hugging and kissing him. He had seen the boy from a long way off. Why? Why did he see him from a long way off? That can only mean one thing. The father was continually expecting the boy's return. There was no other thought in his mind. Then when the kid tried to offer his speech, the father cut him off and said, let's have a party. 
to celebrate his coming home. I got a question for you. Where is the reproof? Where is the I told you so? Where is the I hope you learned your lesson? Where is the well, we'll just have to wait and see how sorry you really are. It's not there, is it? The father had none of that for the wayward child. It is not there because this is not the parable of the prodigal son. That's what we've always heard. That's what it says in your Bible. But this is the parable of the loving father. That was the purpose of what Jesus was showing. It's more about the goodness of God than it is about the wickedness of man. The father was not looking for anything other than the return of the one who had wandered off. That was enough repentance for him, just that he came back. He wasn't looking for any apologies. He didn't need any expression of sorrow. He wasn't looking for any tears. He was only, he was only looking for his son. That's all God wants from you. He just wants you. That's it. He just wants you. He wants us to awaken to whose we are and for us to return to where we belong. That's the only repentance that is required of anyone. He will take care of everything else that is needed after we get home. Too often the gospel is presented in such a way of, if you want to come home, you're going to have to get your life right. Then he'll accept you. It's not what Jesus said. Now we can see this more plainly as we consider the passage from the scripture lesson. You'll know I'm not just talking out my ear. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. Y'all don't know how deeply I feel this reality. It's, I apologize, but it's just so deep for me. He was not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God does not count our trespasses, our sins, our iniquities against us. He does not. Why? Because Jesus has died. Jesus was crucified. That's why. He's not counting anyone's trespasses against them. But that's not what we've believed for decades, is it? We've been taught to believe that if we are sorry for our sins, we need to be truly sorry for our sins in order for God to accept us. Now the word reconciling in this passage, God was reconciling the world to himself. That word reconciling is the same word we use for balancing the books. We need to make sure that all our debits and credits are applied for our balance to be correct. In this case, the books are balanced by the blood of Jesus. There is no sin too great. There is no one who has committed too many sins that his blood cannot cover 
because I am firmly persuaded to believe, to know, that if there is or was one sin or one person for whom his blood was not efficient, then it was ineffective for all. If it was not good enough for one, it was not good enough for any. But that's not what we learn from the scriptures. We don't learn that from the word. We learn something else. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now this is a verse which is often preached in evangelistic meetings where the goal is to get people saved, to have them accept Jesus. And the preacher hammers home the idea that because of Adam's sin, we all sin. That's true. And because we all sinned, we will all die a spiritual death. That's almost true. The only remedy for that spiritual death is to accept Jesus. And if you don't, then you will die a spiritual death, which means you will go to hell. Therefore, you need to make sure that you get yourself into Christ. That's the way it's usually preached. Sounds perfectly logical to me. Doesn't it sound logical to you? However, if we do not pay attention to what Paul is saying here, we will go along with that line of thinking. So let's look a little more closely. Pay attention to this verse up here. How many die in Adam? All. Okay. How many are in Adam? All. All people are in Adam. How did they get there? How did you get yourself into Adam? By being born. You were born there, right? It was not made by a choice of your free will. You were born in Adam. However, when it comes to so also in Christ of this verse... We change that to making a choice. If you don't make the right choice, then you can't be in Christ. Can you see with me the lack of logic that's being applied to this verse? We take something that happens without our involvement or without our choice that is a detriment but the good is only if you make the choice. That's not what Paul is saying. If we only had this verse and the teachings about how you must accept Jesus, which concept is not in Scripture. There is no concept in Scripture of accepting Jesus. If we only had this verse, then it would seem to be a correct understanding. However, we're not left with only this one in its somewhat ambiguity. Paul says in another place in Romans, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Now for those who may have a problem, the word men is mankind, it's not male species, it's mankind. Now this is about as plain as it gets. One person, Adam, committed one sin, and that one sin led to condemnation for the entire human race. 
One person, Jesus, did his one act of righteousness, which led to justification and life for the entire human race. (laughs) Glory to God. Now, the word justification there is the idea of justice being completed. The demands of justice have been met in Christ. Now, we're going to go a little bit further, and I want you to know it gets better. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. Now, here is another verse like the one in Corinthians that we just looked at. It's possible here, and people exercise their mental gymnastics in order to make it say something to fit their paradigm of having to choose Jesus. They focus on the many being made righteous to prove that it is not everyone. Many is not all, is that correct? That's what we would assume, right? When it says many, that just means many, not everybody thinking. But another, another time for question. Why is the second many in this verse different from the first many? The many were made sinners by one man's disobedience. Who are we talking about? Adam and the entire human race. How many were made sinners because of his disobedience? The entire human race. Therefore, is it at all logical to assume that the second many, which is the same word in the Greek, is it logical to assume that it's a different many? It can't be different from the first. Now, can we with a straight face say that the second many is not as inclusive as the first? Well, as far as ability goes, yes, we can. But it defies and denies any sense of rationality. The many in Adam are the same many that's in Christ. We've tried to make it that we have to have a choice. We have to make the decision. We cannot without the grace of God. So, what have we said? We've shown that any and all who have their sins covered or forgiven are blessed. Anyone for whom that's true is blessed. We've seen that the Father is only concerned with our coming to our senses and realizing that we already belong to him. We've also seen that he does not keep a record of wrongs. That may be the hardest one for us to get over because we've been taught way before we were born, our parents believed it, and we've been taught to believe it, that our good deeds must outweigh our bad deeds in order for a positive outcome. But he doesn't keep a record of wrongs, so how's that gonna be? He does not count anyone's sins, trespasses, or iniquities against them. This truth about God's love should completely eliminate any fear that someone may have about sinning in such a way as to doom them to hell. It's not possible. 
That's not what Jesus taught about the Father. And we looked a few weeks ago that we looked to Jesus to know the Father. And yes, as we struggle with these things, our minds want to take us into, well, what about this one? Or what about that one? What about the person who does this? Or the person who dies before this? All those hypothetical situations, they're all answered in God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So what about? There's your answer. Well, what about this other one? There's your answer. Why was Jesus submitted to such humiliation if it wasn't going to solve the problem? There's far too many Christians who are continually afraid that their sins might outweigh their good deeds and they will wind up in hell. It's one of the things that drives the fear of so many believers who are not confident in the love of God. But that's not the Father's love because the perfect love casts out fear. As John tells us, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect is the word for mature, complete, perfect, however you want to put it. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears punishment has not been perfected in love. So brothers and sisters, what I want you to get this morning is the reality that you are loved with a perfect love which has no conditions for your acceptance. You are loved with a love that has no boundaries. There is nothing you can do to defeat this love. Try as you will to shove it away. It's there. His love will find you regardless of where you may choose to wander. David said, though I make my bed in hell, thou art with me. That's what happened to what, the son that we call the prodigal. He couldn't escape the father's love. He looked at his surroundings, the nastiness of his life. But it was the father's love that woke him up and brought him home. Maybe this time we all just simply learn to bask in the reality of that love. Let it be for you.